Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube show SciShow happen, <laughs> and also some friends, also extra friends. So, as always, I'm joined by Stefan Chin. Stefan, what's your tagline? The refreshing Barry Medley. God, that sounds nice. Sam Schultz is also here with us today. Uh, Tell me about a color I don't know about. I don't think that's possible. First of all, can't describe a color. And second of all, every you know every one of them. Taupe. Yeah. I don't know what that is. Mauve. Chartreuse. Chartreuse. Mm. Who knows? Yeah. I'm pretty sure I know all of those, but that's fine. What's your tagline? Yabba dabba do. Oh, God. <laughs> Sari Riley's with us here today as well. Hello. Hi, Sari. What's your tagline? The cool one. <gasps> no. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> if I say it, we have a special guest here. He won't know anything else. <laughs> now Jason thinks you're the cool one, for sure. <laughs> and this week, taking my place on the science couch, we have our guest, birder, science communicator, and host of the YouTube series Birds of North America, Jason Ward. Jason, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing pretty What's good. What's the best bird? The Oh, that's easy. The best bird is the peregrine falcon, the fastest animal on Earth. <laughs> The actual answer, I'm sorry you were wrong, is brown pelican. (laughs) We'll fight about that later. What's your tagline? Birds are greater than fish. That seems like a hot take. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're going to... There's going to be a lot of upset people out there. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. And I'm Hank Green, and my tagline is, that's not paper. What is it? (laughs) You'll never know. Every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts. Every week, we're playing for glory, but we're also keeping score and awarding sandbucks from week to week. We do everything we can to stay on topic, but judging by previous conversations, we might be bad at that. So if the rest of the team deems your tangent unworthy, we'll force you to give up one of your sandbucks. So, tangent with care. Now, as always, we introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem this week from Sam. A little birdie on my porch did land, who said, here I sit, quite cute and tiny, with dainty feathers and a song most grand. On wings I fly in the bright sun shiny, but you must believe that before you stands, he who was the king of all you see now, who stood on clawed foot as tall as houses, whose mighty roar brought all creatures to bow. But without my permission, the world changed, and I with it. My size, my teeth, my prowess, I lost as time marched on, and did exchange them for the soft, beaked form you do meet. So remember me, thou who does now reign, your time will end. Now give me seeds, tweet, tweet. Wow. Why, tell me more about the bright sun shiny. Like, why? Tell me about that decision. <laughs> well, okay, so I took the rhyme scheme from uh, the poem Ozymandias. Oh, okay. I just needed to rhyme tiny with something. So Okay. So I guess th- that would mean that today the the topic is birds, everyone. There's plenty to say about birds. So, Sari, wh- what are birds? <laughs> I will start with the taxonomic designation of birds, but I would love help from Jason on the science couch to help flesh out the idea of like what really is a bird in the heart of a human. So (laughs) there is the phylum chordata, which includes all chordates, which includes some biological jargon that I don't think the listeners of the podcast need to know about right now. But what's important is chordates are divided into three subphyla, one of which is vertebrata, which has all vertebrates in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are things like fish and reptiles and amphibians and birds, which 
are in the class Aves. Uh, so they are warm-blooded vertebrates, and they have things like feathers and beaks and lay hard-shelled eggs. And that's like the very, very basic stuff. But I am very curious to hear Jason's definition of a, of a bird, because it's probably much more heartfelt than what I can look at. <laughs> it'd be my pleasure. So birds are single-handedly the most amazing animals on this planet. They have figured out the cheat codes to Earth, and they occupy <laughs> every single niche out there. If it's a really disgusting, scalding, hot desert, birds are there. If it's the Antarctic, birds are there. Out in the sea, birds are there. Flying over mountains, you name it. Urban environments, uh, suburbia, grasslands, birds have figured it out. So they are modern-day tiny dinosaurs who have all of the cheat codes to the planet that we know and love. I mean, some of them are tiny. Some of them are big dinosaurs, just normal-sized <laughs> dinosaurs. Like a completely normal size for a dinosaur, I would say, for some of them. And they feel very strongly that I would not like to tussle with one. Yeah. So we have like, there's like the platypus where there's it's like this sort of like edge of mammals is sort of how I think of it because like they lay eggs. They don't have nipples, but they do lactate. Is there like an edge of birds like some bird that isn't quite a bird, or is the distinction sort of sharp enough at the like at the deeper dinosaur lineage because they've been around for longer? That's a really good question. I'd say that if there were a couple of birds that kind of blur those lines there, you're thinking about some of the rat types, right? Some of these large flightless birds who seem reptilian almost when they walk around. We're talking about cassowary, ostrich, emu, mm-hmm. right? These are these are large birds that seem like giant reptiles. Also, you have pigeons and doves who decide to flip the script and feed their young what we call pigeon milk, uh, which is sort of mammalian in a sense. Um, So those are the ones that come to mind initially when you think about birds Mm -hmm. that blur the line there. Sari, do you know where the word bird comes from? Because I have heard that that the bird is the word. Whoa. (laughs) Apparently, the origin of the word bird... I did not consult any linguists on this, but from my research, is very mysterious. There is Old English bird, rare collateral form of brid, originally young bird, comma, nestling, which is Mm. of uncertain origin with no cognates in any other Germanic language. (gasps) So somebody said bird and everybody else went, (laughs) yeah, bird. That seems right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh And then they just used it. So uh, whoever came up with the word bird it indeed was the word that we just used from that point uh, on. Now it's time for... One of our panelists has prepared three science facts for our education and enjoyment, but only one of those facts is real, and the rest of us have to do our our best by deduction or wild guess to figure out which is the true fact. If we get it right, then we get the sandbuck. If not, then Jason gets the sandbuck because Jason has brought in those three facts. Jason, what are they? All righty, so... I want to tell you about these three really, really cool birds. Um, but of course, only one of these facts are real. These facts today are going to be sensory themed. So it's safe mm. to say that we'll be using our common sense to come to our conclusions okay. today. Okay, well, <laughs> cool. maybe not. Okay, never mind. Number one, <laughs> birds are well known for their extravagant vocal and optical displays when trying to attract a mate. But the crested auklet raises the stakes. 
It's the first bird discovered to communicate using odor. When feathers in the back of the neck are ruffled, a strong citrus scent that smells like tangerines Mm. can seal the deal for a potential mate. Ooh. All right. So that's number one. I like that one because it means someone sniffed a bird. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Number two, the greater honey guide is a bird with a special adaptation. Before hatching, chicks develop sharp hooks on the tips of their bills. These hooks are used to feel around for a pressure point and break out of the egg. And later on in life, they're used to pierce into fruit and flowers to rob nectar. Number three, the oven bird is a cool bird with a cool name. This slow, ground-dwelling North American warbler was a very popular food item with 19th century ornithologists, which is how it got its name. They, they, we call them oven birds because, like, they're good to put in the oven. <laughs> is that, that, that's the third fact. Okay. So the first fact mm. is the crested auklet uh, releases a tangerine-like smell to a- attract mates. The greater honey guide uses sharp hooks on the beak to break out of eggs and to steal nectar. Am I right about that? Mm-hmm. From, from fruits? And the oven bird was so delicious, it was named after the thing you put it into. And it's a, it's a slow warbler, so it's easy to grab. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, but warblers are pretty small, right? Warblers are tiny, tiny birds. Um, they are neotropical for the most part. Um, so right now it's uh, August, and pretty soon we'll see fall migration, which is about 20 billion birds leaving the U.S. and Canada on their way to South America. Wow. Okay. So they were like the chicken nuggets. <laughs> you grab a handful, yeah. stick them in the oven, and then you've got <laughs> snacks. But you got to eat the bones? or The crunchy, probably. Oh, I think no. it sounds good. I think it adds a nice textural element. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not, I won't knock it until I try it. I will eat anything <laughs> at least once. Okay. I like it. Mm. Okay. I won't. I won't. Um, so there's that. <laughs> Do you know, like, temperature time? Like, how long do they need to be in there? How many do I need to feed a family of four? I don't. And you know what? I will say that a lot of ornithologists back in the day, um, they weren't discriminatory in, when it came to what the things that they ate. The greater honey god has sharp hooks on its beak to break out of its eggs, but then also it uses it later on. Yes. You said something about a pressure point. What is the pressure point? So I guess they look for the, like, the soft point in the egg in order to easily hmm. break out of it. And there's like an egg tooth. That's a thing, right? An egg tooth. Mm-hmm, with some birds, yeah. Thing? yeah. Yeah, yep, yep. So this this presupposes a bird who never loses its egg tooth, basically. Egg teeth are actual teeth. They which are? is weird because like birds don't have teeth. Oh. But they used to. And so sometimes huh. they will, they still have the genes for teeth. Oh. Which is one of the ways that scientists are like, we're going to bring back dinosaurs by turning back all <laughs> the dinosaur genes back on. And then you just get like a scary chicken with teeth. And then we got a we got the tangerine bird, mm-hmm. which also makes me kind of want to take a bite out of it, but uh, probably <laughs> wouldn't go great. Probably not. This this is a seabird, and it probably uh, tastes like fish. That could be a nice crossover food, though. Did you say that it had to like it like scratched itself a little bit to get the smell? So it's like a scratch and sniff bird almost. Sort <laughs> of, sort of. Yeah, the the feathers would have to be ruffled. Uh, in order to release the odor. This one sounds so familiar, but there's so many animals that smell like different weird things that I can't, I can't. Yeah. Think this is really yeah but one of usually them they smell like rotting corpses or something like. Yeah, but that one smells like popcorn, right? Oh, the binturong. They have, their pee smells like popcorn. 
I like this because a lot of times the scent that an animal animal produces, as Stefan says, is like not to us particularly pleasant. Yeah. Like you got musky smells, skunky smells, strong smells. But like flowers, on the other hand, are like, I'm going to smell amazing. Just amazing. <laughs> mostly, most of the time. Where you like come across, like you hit a lilac and you're like, what? You just blew my mind with that smell. I like the idea that, it, that an animal, like plants seem to be good at making good smells. Animals seem to be good at making bad smells. I like the idea of a bird that just smells awesome. So I'm going to go with the tangerine bird. Oh, but when you put it that way, it sounds less likely. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like something that Jason would like carefully weave to make it seem likely. I'm going to go with the honey guide because that seems like a thing a bird would do. And it's like, here's this really cool bird that knows how to find sweet stuff and get into it. I'm with Hank here. I think this one is so good. The, the smelly, the, the wonderful smelling bird. I, I really mm-hmm. want that to be true. So I'm going with it. But are we sleeping on oven bird? I'm pretty sure I've heard of an oven bird. Oh, they're real? Okay. I think my gut's telling me I gotta go with the tangerine birds, though. Oh, wow. And you can play along at twitter.com slash scishowtangents. Go there now and choose which fact you think is the true fact before we tell you. Do not cheat. Go now. Tell us what you think. Okay. And now we're going to tell you what the true fact is. Jason? The true fact is the tangerine bird. Yes. Wow. (laughs) Yes. So um, the crested auklet and also its close cousin, the whiskered auklet, they're adorable birds. You should look them up. Um, When disturbed or when trying to attract a mate, they will ruffle those feathers. Uh, I I got a chance to smell them when I took a uh, a pelagic trip out in the Bering Sea last year. And there were just flocks of uh, auklets out on the water. And when they flew away from the boat, you can smell the tangerine just linger in the air. What? Oh. Are there other nice-smelling birds, or is that it? <laughs> it's just those two. Wow. Wow. These are really unique birds that not only do they use odor, but they also use verbal and also visual cues to attract the mate. So they go all out. It's, it's the it citrus mm. scent. It's the, 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 the size of the crest And it's also their really weird trumpeting sound that they make as well. Not to outdo them, but I also have used all three of those methods to attract a mate. (laughs) There you go. So the honey guide actually is a little bit darker than 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 what I described there. So Uh it it is a bird that is that has sharp hooks on its beak, but this particular bird is a brood parasite. So its parents lay eggs in another bird's nest. In fact. Sometimes they will, I don't know the term, I believe it's self-incubate. They'll incubate internally for a little bit. They'll cook it internally for for a little bit and then lay it so that it hatches really, really quickly. And mm-hmm. what these baby birds will do, they're featherless and blind, but they will use those sharp hooks to either pierce the shells of the other eggs in the nest, or they will, if the baby is born, they will grab them and shake them and stab them. So, oh, no. Yeah, which makes them... Really cool, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, they're like born with a dagger. And yeah, just ready to go and on. then and then they fall off after fourteen days. And the oven bird uh, is named after the nest that it makes. It looks like an oven. Does it function like an oven? That's a good question. I don't think so. Some birds do definitely mm. eggs that are under these mounds that keep them at a certain temperature and just then just walk oh, away. Yeah. But I don't think the oven bird mm-hmm. does that. Huh. 
you got to cook a baby bird just a little tiny bit to the last. That's right. Next up, we're going to take a short break. Then it will be time for the fact off. Welcome back, everybody. Sam Buck totals. Jason's got one. Sam's got two. Stefan's got one. I've got one. And Sari has nothing. Boo. <laughs> I'm okay. the cool one, though. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's the, the important thing is not whether you win. It's how cool you are. Mm-hmm. And now it is time for the fact off, where two panelists have brought in science facts to present to the others in an attempt to blow our minds. And we each have a sandbook to award the fact that we like the most. This week, it is Stefan versus Sari. And we will decide who goes first with this trivia question. In what year did Bird Lore Magazine propose the first annual Christmas bird count to replace the traditional Christmas bird hunt? (laughs) What? So it's the idea you go outside and you're like, oh, I'm going to count some birds now to celebrate the holidays. Instead of I'm going to go outside and massacre some birds. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or like you go on a, you go on a a trek, you trek around and you see how many birds. They're so much fun. You are um, patrolling a certain area with a, with a small team. And your goal there is to count not only every species you see, but try to be as accurate as possible and count every individual that you see that day as well. Wow. Yeah. I think the passenger pigeon got completely extinct in like the 1910s at some point. Ooh. So it's, that's when we started worrying about birds. We were like, oh shit, we can make them extinct. So I'm going to guess 1927. Interesting. I don't know. I feel like we cared about birds, but then we didn't really care about birds until a little later. Mm-hmm. So maybe like 1978? What? Wow, that's, that's very that's way later. <laughs> okay. Like, uh, well, I I agree with you though that it it has taken us a while <laughs> to get on board, uh, but it turns out it was the year nineteen hundred, oh. <laughs> and it's <laughs> even before still going. <laughs> yeah, the, somebody should have learned. They were out there counting passenger pigeons, and they were like, "There's a lot. There's so <laughs> many. We can't <laughs> even count all of them. It's so many." And then the next year, they were like, "It seems like less." And then the year after that, they were like, "Well." We did it, oopsie. <laughs> it is still going and it's now attracting 70,000 volunteers every year. So be a part of the Christmas bird count. Sounds like a great tradition to be a part of. So that means that Sari gets to decide who goes first. Um, I will go first. I will rip off the Band-Aid and try and impress my friends, but mostly Jason with my facts. <laughs> Before we had things like drones with cameras and image recognition software, we relied really heavily on human eyes to help with search and rescue operations, like the ones done by the U.S. Coast Guard. They're the military branch that sends out boats or helicopters or some other craft to look for people in emergencies in the ocean, like if a ship wrecked, and then they're like, ah, help me. But some researchers in a Tufts University lab in the 1940s realized that we had something better than human eyes, pigeon eyes, at least when it came out to picking certain shapes and colors um, out of an image for a treat. So with this idea in the late 1970s and early 1980s, a Navy scientist started Project Sea Hunt and trained pigeons to help with Coast Guard search and rescue missions. 
Pigeons have a long life expectancy, more than 10 years, and were fairly easy to train to recognize red, orange, or yellow objects floating in the water, which are colors commonly used in rescue gear. And they would be in their own pigeon capsule attached to a helicopter and peck a special button that would signal the pilot when they saw something. And in one group of training, three pigeons spotted an orange life preserver in 80 of 89 trials, while humans only Mm. saw that orange life preserver in 34 of 89 trials. And even in times where humans saw it, the pigeons usually saw the life preserver first. And so together with human eyes and pigeon eyes, they're basically unstoppable. But unfortunately, (laughs) there were a couple not pigeon-related helicopter incidents, which resulted in some not-so-alive pigeons. So the humans survived the helicopter crashes in the ocean, but they didn't have safety mechanisms for the pigeon capsule. (laughs) Project Sea Hunt never got past the testing phase and stopped in 1983 because most people wanted to spend money on more conventional equipment like spotlights or infrared cameras or fancier helicopters with autopilot instead of training pigeons, even though a lot... There was like one scientist and a couple people around him who were really rallying for the pigeons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems really good. Do we have this, uh, as successful a, a hit rate for finding stuff as we ever did with the pigeons? I, I guess we do by now, probably. But I think that the use of infrared cameras and other devices that Mm -hmm. see things, see in quotes things that human eyes can't see, Mm -hmm. have made up for the pigeons in the Coast Guard Mm -hmm. and Navy's mind. So they're like, oh, we can search for heat signatures that complements human vision in a way that like pigeon eyes complemented human vision and made it better. There is also some part of the report that I was reading that said that some people in the Navy or Coast Guard were hoping that the pigeons would become like the Smokey the Bear of the Coast Guard. <laughs> so like really uh, increase public morale by having a pigeon mascot. So. <laughs> yeah, because everybody knows like the average person's absolute favorite <laughs> yeah. animal is the grossest, dirtiest bird. <laughs> it could really be a chance to rebrand pigeons. Though. I can't let this stand. Um, pigeons are survivors. They are incredible at at adapting to their environment. I mean, these are birds that you can normally find in the Mediterranean region on cliff faces. And now we've built up these concrete cliff faces and they've adapted to our cities. And now they have to contend with the fastest animal on the planet. You see how I bring it back to the peregrine? And they have to be able to (laughs) escape the clutches of the best bird. Mm. And And if you're good at that, you have to be a pretty impressive bird yourself. I actually witnessed a hawk take down a pigeon in my neighborhood just last week. And my son was like, what's that? And I was like, well, <laughs> that big bird is eating that little bird. And he was like, why? Because <laughs> <laughs> like, like for the same reason we eat birds, bud. And he was like, but I think it should be nicer. And I was like, I don't think it should. <laughs> I think it's doing what it's supposed to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the situation. Get used to it. It's a cold, hard world. Oh, boy. <laughs> Stefan, what do you got for us? So I want to talk about the elephant bird. Because the elephant bird is probably the biggest bird that's ever existed at almost 10 feet tall. Ooh. And up to 1,600 pounds, which is what? a gigantic bird. They are large flightless birds like like an ostrich that were only found on the island of Madagascar up until mm. about 500 to 1,000 years ago. But even though they were around so recently, we don't really know much about their lives or why they disappeared, although we have some ideas um, because we know that humans did hunt them. 
we had sort of assumed that they were like other big flightless birds and that they were active during the day with and had pretty good vision. But a thing that I didn't know is that apparently bird skulls closely follow the shapes of their brains. And so if you have the skull, you can model that and get a sense of like what areas of the brains are bigger or smaller on different species. And so using CT scans, they modeled the brains of two elephant bird skulls, um, two different species, and found that they would have had very small visual areas of the brain. Hmm. And so contrary to previous assumptions about these birds, this was evidence that they may have been actually nocturnal and potentially blind or just had really terrible vision, which seems weird and very scary for such a large creature to have (laughs) terrible vision. You have a thousand pound plus bird like crashing through forests. But in some ways, them having really poor vision and being nocturnal is not that surprising because the bird's closest living relative is the kiwi, which is a tiny bird that's still around under 10 pounds. But the kiwi is also nocturnal, basically blind and flightless, though I think it lives in New Zealand. They think that since they were more active at night and they're aren't really a a lot of predators on Madagascar that they could get away with de-emphasizing vision. Because I think think they are much bigger than the largest predator on Madagascar. So you end up with this gigantic bird that can't see. And were they grazers? So they weren't like, they weren't hunters. They just ate grass and stuff. I don't know exactly what they eat. They might have eaten coconuts, (sighs) it says. Okay, so they had to break through them. So they had to be big to break through the endocarps. Yeah. Were they hunted to extinction? Is that what I was just about to ask? Oh, yeah. yeah so that that's one of the theories is that because I think they had seen like villagers using like the eggshells as bowls, and mm. like they found the remains of eggshells in fireplaces and stuff. So they know that we were eating them, at least their eggs. I mean, yeah, if you can like get, if you can get an egg that can feed like (laughs) a whole village, you're going to get that egg. Yeah. So, so that's one idea is that we hunted them to extinction. And then the other idea I think is that there was like a disease, a birdemic, if you will, on Madagascar (laughs) that took them out. (laughs) Oh no. All right. So we have to battle between Sari with researchers training search and rescue pigeons to find people and life preservers in the ocean, or Stefan with the uh, relatively recently extinct flightless bird that was almost 10 feet tall and probably nocturnal. And ha- we are finding it have very poor vision because we now can apparently do brain scans on extinct animals, kind of. <laughs> Which will you choose? We will all, is everybody ready to say on three? One, two, three, Sari. Whoa. Oh, sweet. (laughs) Coming from behind. Ah, the cool one. And that means that it is time to ask the science couch. So we've got listener questions for our couch of finely honed scientific minds. And this one comes from at Polycentric, who says, do birds intentionally pick their targets when they decide to poop while flying? (laughs) I have some personal experience with this. And I believe that certainly not in every case, but definitely sometimes. <laughs> Jason, Jason, how right am I? I, I like your answer. Um, so the technical answer is no, right? The, the Oh, I disagree. So the thing is, <laughs> birds poop a lot, right? And, and, you know, like small birds poop like maybe five to six times per hour. 
So it's a lot of times, Ooh. right? It's a lot of poop because they're constantly eating, right? So they're they're constantly pooping as well. And think about all of the times that poop misses you or misses your car. Um, it's yeah. it's all about where you position yourself, where you position your car. We are just pattern seeking animals, and we want to connect dots and make sense of things. So yeah, it's, sometimes it definitely seems like birds have a vendetta. Now. <laughs> if a bird is perched or if you're in its territory, then maybe it changes, yes. right? Because this is what happened to me. Yes. I was playing tennis under an osprey nest. <sighs> and osprey don't have cute little dainty bird poops. They shoot their poop out of the nest <laughs> so that it doesn't collect. And I got hit with like a fucking warm super soaker of osprey shit. Oh. Did it smell oh. like fish? Yeah, it smelled like everything. Oh. <laughs> it was like every smell. I'll give oh, you a story boy. in solidarity, right? So I, <laughs> I, I used to work into Atlanta and um, no surprise, I used to volunteer with the bird department. And so I'm in, I'm doing husbandry and I'm cleaning one of the enclosures, uh, one of the multi-bird enclosures. And I am down on the ground grabbing some stuff and I feel something really warm and runny on the side of my face. And the pied pigeon had pooped on me and their poop is warm and green and liquidy. And (laughs) it was all over the side of my face. And the keeper that I was working with said, hey, let's take a picture. So the picture's out there somewhere (laughs) on the internet. Yeah, that felt personal, that one there. So territorially Mm -hmm. speaking, is that a real thing? Or is that just you're closer so the likelihood is you're going to be pooped on is much higher i'm likely to believe that it's just coincidence you know okay. we're, we're we're around their areas and um i mean if they were marksmen like that that would be pretty impressive yeah uh, <laughs> vultures intentionally poop on themselves so if you're ever feeling like boy Birds, sure, do seem like they're pooping on me all the time. Well, at least you're not a vulture who gets pooped on by a bird constantly because that they do it on purpose. If you want to ask the Science Couch your questions, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents. We tweet out uh, topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to at CollectorGood, at JustBeingElky, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions this week. Final Sandbuck scores... For the week, Sari came out on top with a fast come from behind that would have been impossible in a normal week. So this is very exciting. Uh, Jason, Stefan, and I all came out with one point in the end, and Sam got two. That means that Sari and Stefan are now tied for the lead. Good, I got complacent. Sam is two points behind, and I am not worth mentioning. (laughs) And Jason has only one point. Too bad. (laughs) Jason, you're all over the internet. You've made a show called Birds of North America, which you can find on YouTube. Where else can people find you? Yeah, other than that, um, you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at JasonWardNY. And um, please feel free to binge watch Birds of North America. We're all inside. We're hanging out. So it's a perfect bingeable show. It's very it is. Good. It's relaxing. It's lovely. They get very excited about birds. It's everything <laughs> that I want, uh, but with not enough brown pelicans. Maybe season three. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's easy to do that. You can give us a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show and also helps us, I think, apparently in other ways. Second, <laughs> you could tweet out your favorite moment from the episode. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell, tell people, people about, about us. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Stefan Chin. I've been Sam Schultz. 
Oh, and I've been Jason Ward. SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the wonderful team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who also edits a lot of these episodes, along with Hiroko Matsushima. Our social media organizer is Paola Garcia Prieto. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarti. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish, and we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. Birds have been observed building nests out of the fluff from smoked cigarette butts. Yes, that's right. I could could have gone with any number of bird butt facts, but instead I've gone with cigarette butt facts. <laughs> and uh, a 2012 study found that these nests might actually be better at warding off parasites possibly due to the presence of nicotine and other chemicals in the cigarette butts. So now we know that it's okay and also great to throw your trash on the ground. Perfect. No, not actually. Smoking and littering are bad for wildlife and humans don't do that. But birds should be allowed to smoke cigarettes if they want to. (laughs) I think birds should smoke! (laughs) 